I was in a philosophy class. They'd asked me to speak in the resurrection. The professor spoke up, said, I take issue with you. I don't think the resurrection ever happened. It's a myth. So immediately I responded. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did you come to that conclusion as a result of examining the evidence, or did you come to a conclusion because your philosophical outlook on life? And he looked at me and said, he says, my philosophical outlook. And so you rejected it because your philosophical outlook in life, not because of whether it's true or not, not whether there's evidence to support it. And that's where so many people are today. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. This is Timothy, and I recently returned from Hawaii. One morning, I woke up and it was 80 degrees. The next morning, I woke up, it was 30 degrees. I was not happy about that. And I'm Garrick, also not happy because I'm currently operating on less than three hours sleep. Whee! Well, today's episode is with Josh McDowell. We're privileged to have him with us. This is going to be a great episode today. But before we talk to Josh, then we have to talk about something else, and that is a very important thing, which is Raiders of Church History. That's right, that time in the program where we bring together two artifacts from church history, place them into battle against one another to see which one wins. Eric, on your three hours of sleep, what have you got today that you're bringing into battle in the Raiders of Church History? Yeah, I'm super surprised that we haven't used this one yet, because this is a relic that is tailor-made for this competition. I bring to you today the Holy Nails. That's right, the Holy Nails, the nails that were used to crucify our Lord and Savior, Jesus, to the cross. Now, the hard thing about this, Timothy, is I bring these nails to you, and apparently I'm bringing 36. There are 36 holy nails that have been accounted for in history, which that's a little awkward because the most that would have been used to crucify Jesus would have been four. It was probably more like three, and yet there are 36 claimed holy nails scattered throughout the world, and so... Uh, there's a couple that feel like a couple places that feel like they have a really good shot at these being authentic. Let's see. In 1968, there was an archaeological dig near Jerusalem and four tombs 
were excavated and three nails were found near the body of a, a young man crucified somewhere around the same time as Jesus. And so we were able from these nails that were kind of like rectangular in shape, about 16 centimeters long. How many inches would that be? I'm American. I don't do centimeters. So we were able to, through these artifacts kind of narrow down some of the probably less authentic ones we have. And so, yeah, we think that the first nail that was venerated today is in the Roman Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. Second nail shows up that was brought to Constantinople in the mid 14th century by a Venetian merchant. Fun fact, Pope Innocent IV, this just made me chuckle, was really interested in acquiring these nails, especially the second one. But he was outbid by just like a local church rector of a hospital. So the Pope couldn't afford to buy one of the nails. And anyways, he apparently, because he's the Pope, he ended up with them later with like a under the table cash deal or whatever. But, you know, and then the third nail, it's tough to figure out which of the remaining 34 might be the third nail. But there they are. I bring to you the holy nails of the crucifixion. So beat that, Timothy. Well, as always, we have to recognize that we are saying this as Protestants. We may or may not actually believe in a lot of these things that we're talking about. We are Protestants. We are not Roman Catholic. And so we are bringing these, and I say that not only about the nails, but also about what I am about to bring, which what I'm going to bring is Martinello, the pet lamb. Martinello, the pet lamb. So if you remember from a previous episode, we had Francis of Paola had animals, and one of them was Antonello, the pet trout. Well, he not only had Antonello, the pet trout, he also had Martinello, the pet lamb. And so what happened both to Martinello and Antonello is that they were accidentally killed for food. So somebody in the monastery <laughs> killed Martinello and Antonello, and they were already being cooked in the fire. But Francis of Paola, he spoke into the fire, reached into the fire, and out came Martinello, the pet lamb, alive and well. Apparently also at another time, perhaps at the same time, I don't know, but Antonello, this happened to him as well. And so out comes Martinello, the pet lamb, alive and well. As a result of this, Francis of Paola is also known as St. Francis the Fire Handler, and he's immune to being burned. Now, we needed that superpower earlier. If you remember, we talked about a lance that was recovered at one point, and then there was a trial by ordeal after that, in which somebody had to walk through fire, and after that, he died. And so <laughs> clearly, he needed. St. Francis of Paola's superpower of being immune to being burned. But I bring to you Martinello, the pet lamb, who was killed, who was brought back to life out of the fire by St. Francis, the fire handler. So we have nails against a lamb right yeah. here. St. Francis, immune to fire, but not immune to people accidentally. I'm using air quotes, accidentally trying to fry up all his pets. <laughs> They should have been holy pets while they were alive so people wouldn't mess with them. But no. So so what are you going to do with your nails against my lamb that can come back to life? Well, see, the thing is, the lamb, I don't think the lamb itself has the ability to come back to life. It's Frankie. It's St. Frankie, the fire handler. And so if I'm making a lamb kebab and I'm going to throw some trout on there, too, with my nails, Frankie can't do anything about that because it has nothing to do with fire. I'm just impaling his special pets and making a, a nice Mediterranean meal out of it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, in 1991, I was a freshman in college, and I was looking for evidence for my faith. I was trying to find some evidence for what I had believed, and I wanted to find it, but I wasn't finding it in the churches I was in or in the college I was in. And I ran across a book. I was a librarian at the time, working my way through college, and I ran across this book entitled More Than a Carpenter. And the book revealed to me something that hadn't been part of my growing up, hadn't been part of of anything that I'd been taught in church, and that was simply the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus, and not just the centrality of the resurrection for our theology. It was rather the centrality of the resurrection for the defense of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And the author of that book was Josh McDowell, who is with us today. And so, Josh, I am delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, this is a privilege, just like going to heaven and being with the Trinity. All right. Well, as a young man, you were an agnostic, and when you examined the claims of Christianity, you found overwhelming evidence for it. And then instead of finishing law school, you went to Wheaton College, did your bachelor's degree there, went to Talbot School of Theology, Master of Divinity there, joined up with Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, launched Josh McDowell Ministries, and you've given, and this looking at this up was just mind-boggling, 27,000 talks to more than 46 million people in at least 150. 39 countries. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That includes, that Texas. You. That includes that the includes country Texas, of Texas yeah. as well. <laughs> it's a whole other country right there, as they often like to say. I'll tell you what I most appreciate about you. One of the things, the many things, is that when something needs to be corrected, updated, changed, you've done it. Evidence that demands a verdict. That book was recognized by World Magazine as one of the 20 most influential books in evangelicalism of the 20th century. And yet, when it time came for it to be corrected, updated in 2017, you brought forth a new edition of that that is better than it was before. And as I look at that, that's one of the things that I really think is important in, in apologetics is when something needs to be changed, needs to be updated, or needs to be corrected, that we are able to do that. And that's a book I've seen that, and that book has had a great impact on a lot of people. Well, you know, most books are never updated. As a result, they have maybe four or five years of circulation good, and then they kind of dwindle away. With evidence, as long as it's updated, it'll always be popular if it's mm -hmm. updated. Yeah. And the thing and is, there's really so important. much new evidence coming out oh, all is. the time. <laughs> and I sit yes. there with all this evidence and saying, I want to share this with others. So I'm going to update more than a carpenter, evidence demands a verdict, answers to tough questions, everything. Praise God. Praise God. And we'll look forward to those coming out, new editions of those as we go, including even the book we're talking about today. Maybe there'll be a new version of it, the book you've written with Thomas Williams, How to Know God Exists, Solid Reasons to Believe in God, Discover Truth, and Find Meaning in Your Life from our friends at Tyndall House. And so that's the book we're going to talk about today. Well, there's a certain question we ask every person who comes on this podcast. It's a very theological question, a very important theological question. And that question is this. If you could be a member of any rock band in the entire history of rock and roll, what band would that be and what would you be doing in that band? Well, I've done that. I was a member of Petra and traveled with them, and I was the speaker. <laughs> and I would do the same thing today. I was the first one, I think, to ever do that. We traveled together, I think it was two years. I'm not absolutely sure. I was a speaker for the band. So that's what I would do today. 
And Petra, I know that a lot of our listeners, their younger listeners, have never heard of Petra. But my goodness, you ought to go back and listen to them because they had a significant impact. And they were doing something nobody else was doing. They were doing theologically solid lyrics to hard rock music at a time when that just wasn't happening for the most part in Christian music. And man, those are some good albums. On Fire, Beyond Belief, you were part of some of those tours that were that went with some of those albums as well, if I recall correctly. I always said, people say, why in the world do you travel to them? You know, how can you worship Christ all in noise? And I would always say, every single night when a concert was over, I was more in love with Jesus than when the concert started. And I remember having some of my supporters say, that's ridiculous. And one was in Austin, Texas with me. And I said, why don't you go to the concert with me? Okay. He came back to my bus afterwards and he said, I now know what you mean. I said, what do you mean? He said, I really think I'm more in love with Jesus now than when I went to the concert. I said, yes, that's the way Christian music ought to affect you. And Petra did. Yeah, they really did. And that's just a call for all of us to recognize that's what we want. Whatever we're doing, speaking, singing, whatever, at the end of the night, we want people to love Jesus more when they left than they did when they came. And that's just a great goal to aspire to for a band, but also for us as individuals and speakers. Well, your book, How to Know God Exists, it gives plenty of rational reasons throughout the book to believe in God, but you don't begin with the classical or the evidential arguments. You do something a little bit like Francis Schaeffer often did. You begin with humanity's point of despair in a secular world, and you work with uh, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, and draw from his notion of, of a disenchanted world, how secularity has in some sense disenchanted the world. Now, why did you start? with this starting point instead of an evidential argument or a classical argument? Why this starting point in the book? Because that's where culture was. Culture goes in waves. The whole solid evidential emphasis of truth and everything was kind of going downhill. And upcoming was relationships, experience, culture. And so that's why I started there, because that's where culture was. But it doesn't take me long to get back into the objective, because that's what Christianity is. So as you look at the different obstacles to faith, as you think through this, you've mentioned one of them, just the despair that people have, this disenchantment of the world, the rise of secularity. As you think about the biggest obstacles to faith when you started your ministry and the biggest obstacles now, how have those changed? So think about when you started out, what were the biggest obstacles, the biggest questions people had then? And now, what are the obstacles and the questions they're raising now? And what's different between those? The biggest question, say, 20, 25 years ago, was more objective. How do you know it's true? Say, I'd be speaking about Christianity. I'd say, well, how do you know it's true? And I go into Christ, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, prophecy, etc. And so back then, culture pretty well determined the way I address things. And you know, you watch Billy Graham and many others, it's the same thing. Billy Graham's emphasis from going from hell to social, etc., went with the wave of the culture of that day, because that's when you're more relevant and you get a bigger listening audience. And I think I learned a lot of that from Billy to do that. But the biggest obstacle then was the same as now, the lives that many believers lived hypocrisy, 
pastors with sexual immorality, Christian leaders, business people falling by the wayside morally, financially, etc. They are still probably the biggest obstacles you have. But one of the big changes taking place, 25 years ago, they were always talking about the doctrine. Well, what does that mean? How do you know that's true, etc. within the scriptures? Then now it's switched to how do you even know God exists? And so it's gone from the doctrine of scripture and the Bible being reliable to how do you even know God exists? And that's where culture is today. And one reason why I wrote the book. So we often think about naturalism and relativism as separate beliefs. This notion of naturalism, that there's nothing beyond the natural world, and relativism, more of the ethics, the moral side of things, of there's nothing that's absolutely right and absolutely wrong. We think of those as two separated things often. But one of the things you talk about in the book a little bit is the ways that those are connected. So how are naturalism and relativism connected to one another in your mind? Probably the biggest way they're connected is that they're both contained in a closed system. You say, what do you mean a closed system? You look at a circle. Everything within that circle is natural, has a natural beginning, a natural ending, understanding naturally. There's no room for something supernatural to interfere within there or to inject himself within it. And both naturalism and relativism fits right in that. That's probably the biggest connection between the two of them is that they live in a closed system world where there's no opportunity for the supernatural to enter. For example, I was in a philosophy class. They'd asked me to speak in the resurrection. The professor spoke up said, I take issue with you. I don't think the resurrection ever happened. It's a myth. So immediately I responded. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did you come to that conclusion as a result of examining the evidence, or did you come to a conclusion because your philosophical outlook on life? And he looked at me and said, he says, my philosophical outlook. And so you rejected it because your philosophical outlook in life, not because whether it's true or not not whether there's evidence to support it. And that's where so many people are today. This is why when somebody talks about naturalism, I say, okay, what do you think is truth? All right. Is that satisfying to you? How does that affect your life? If it's all within a natural circle. And the thing about Christianity is that there is a supernatural God who has intervened within the natural progression of history. And most people say, well, that can't happen. They're not rejecting it because of the evidence for or against it. They're rejecting it because of their philosophical outlook on it. I always say to people, I said, well, I have a philosophical outlook in a lot of things. But if my philosophical outlook doesn't coincide with the evidence, then I got to question the meaning of it. What are the things you're highlighting in that? is the fact that Christianity is often described or depicted as a closed-minded system, something that is closed-minded. But the fact is we are more open-minded than the atheist is because the atheist in many cases has a philosophical 
predisposition that has closed him or her off from even considering certain types of evidence because they have deemed it to be unlikely. You rule the supernatural philosophically, not evidentially. Yeah. I guess what motivates me in my books and everything, if there's anything that I believe is not true, I want to know it. Because if there's something I believe is not true, one, I don't want to live it. Second, I don't want to preach it. I don't want to teach it. And that's why I don't mind people attacking me. Some people are really delighted, and I'm glad because I've yet only maybe one time, and I can't remember what it was, that somebody come up to something I was, I believed in saying was not true, and I backed off from it. The people that write against me and everything do me a great favor. Because if they can make sense and document what I'm saying is wrong, I'll consider it. And the truth will set you free. If anyone should rejoice in the truth, it's a Christian. Now, many don't. And the reason is many are insecure. They're not really knowledgeable about the Christian faith. They're really not, they're not very knowledgeable philosophically. And so they fear anything that will question what they believe. But as Christians, I think we should rejoice in being questioned in what we believe. Plus, it gives me a lot of opportunities to share Jesus. Well, one of the challenges we sometimes are faced with, and this is something you faced, I faced, we're just being faced with this in a lot of different ways, is explaining our moral convictions to skeptics. Because I think one of the things that has happened over the past couple of decades is a couple of decades ago, it was much more focused on the evidence, as you've pointed out. I think more and more we see that the challenges, the questions are not merely evidential. They are evidential, but they're not merely that. They're also moral. That is to say that people are questioning the morals of Christianity. And so what do you do and what advice do you have for Christians who want to explain their moral, their ethical convictions to skeptics in a world where those moral and ethical convictions are becoming increasingly unpopular? Very simple. If there's only one thing I could say would be, know the Bible, know the Bible, and then know the Bible. All your moral beliefs, everything we believe about Jesus, everything comes back to the scriptures. And I believe every Christian should develop a scriptural apologetic. That's why I've written many of my books. I've documented everything so people won't have to do all the work that I did. They can take what I did and then work from it. That will help them to develop a biblical apologetic. How do you know the Bible is true? Why do you believe it's true? You better answer that question first before you start talking about morality from a Christian perspective, because you will be challenged on it. So start with the Bible. Start with the Bible. First, before you even know what the Bible says, you've got to convince yourself with integrity that the Bible is true and relevant. What I have is what was written down. It has not been changed. Second, was what was written down true? Did Jesus actually say that? Did he actually do that? And those are the two big questions I had as a non-believer, and those are the two issues I deal with today. I take the Bible. Is what I have today what was written down? I believe wholeheartedly is, and I've written books on it, on why I trust that what I have today is what was written down 
People that didn't like something didn't take it out. And what they did like, put it in. Second, what was written down was true. Jesus actually said that, and he actually did that. Now you can go to a third question. What did it mean? When Jesus said that, what did it mean? When Jesus did that, what did that mean? And that almost always comes back to the word you used, the resurrection. And I love that simplicity of what you described right there. It's just starting out with, was this really what was written? Was it really true? And what does it mean? Apologetics is exegetical. Yeah, it can become very profound. For example, you've got to ask yourself, what do you take as true historically? What conditions are there for it? How do you interpret what you take as true historically? And that can get pretty profound. But the more you study that, and there's a lot of good books and speakers on it and everything, the deeper your convictions become. And the deeper your convictions become, the more courageous you become to share your faith with others. Well, one of the things that was my favorite thing in this book you've written, this most recent book, is what you talk about to do with beauty. So we've talked about the objective evidence, some of the, the foundations for that. We've talked about the morals and ethics. I want to talk about beauty, the experience of beauty and the importance of that, which you address in this book, How to Know God Exists. And I think about this, there's a book called Beyond Evolution by a philosopher named Anthony O'Hear, and he talks about human creativity and human appreciation of beauty. And he talks about those and admits in this book that naturalistic evolution cannot provide a satisfying explanation for why we would create beauty and why we would appreciate beauty. In fact, as he shows, those are actually things that a naturalistic evolutionary system ought to eliminate or reduce, and yet it has not. And so in your thinking, talk about what role does the experience of beauty play in our conversations about truth, about meaning, and about faith? With beauty, you need a standard by which to compare it. And in secular evolution, you don't have a standard. It's a closed system. With Christianity, you have a supernatural explanation of it, the very person, character, and nature of God. And what God creates, what God says, and what the Bible depicts that he does is true. And it reflects his nature. And you see he is consistent, he is truthful, he is personal, and he's relating. And that becomes the standard for beauty, for how we appreciate creation, everything. And when you look at creation, you can see form, but that form is a manifestation of the very character and nature of God. And so I think once you come to know Christ personally, and you study the nature and character of God the Father, the environment, nature and all, takes on a whole different perspective. I mean, I'm looking out now, I guess it's a golf course some, leading out and I see all the ocean, everything, and the trees. And that takes on a beauty to me because I know that represents the very nature and character of God. God doesn't create any junk. So all creation should take you back to the character of God. And the character of God is consistent, truthful, and it's beautiful. 
One of the things I tell my students in a worldview class that I teach is this notion that we often say if beauty is simply in the eye of the beholder, (laughs) we may not recognize it, but that is a rejection of the notion of objective beauty, of the reality that beauty is actually beautiful because it participates in the reality of God. It's not just what I see and my opinion about it. It is that there is real beauty that represents a participation in the actual character of who God is. And that is a key part of our worldview and should be a key part of our apologetics. Well, you take a sunset where there's no clouds and where you look out and the sun goes down, kind of comes back up for a little bit and the rays all go out. I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't say, isn't that beautiful? That's a universal standard of beauty, I believe. And of course, God created that. So I think beauty is more than subjective. It can be objective. When you see someone in a very loving relationship and even say where maybe the wife was in a car accident hurt and the husband just loves her incredibly and serves her and helps her. I don't think I could meet anyone who wouldn't say, isn't that beautiful? There are common standards of beauty in the world. There really are. And if God created the world, then that would be true. That would be true. And then, of course, there's some people think some men are handsome and others aren't. And then we have to figure out which one we fit into. And I always think I fit into the handsome one. (laughs) (laughs) But there are standards of beauty. So one of the things I've really appreciated about you is you have an optimism. You just exude that. The times I've heard you speak, and even in your writing, there is an optimism. And I find that refreshing because so many apologists and so much apologetics seems really pessimistic. The world is getting terrible. Secularism is on the rise and all the attitudes. And rather than seeing those as challenges that God has placed us in a particular time for a particular purpose, these are viewed as this is the end of everything. Thing, or at least that's the attitude people seem to have. And so I just would like to know what makes you hopeful about the future of evangelism and apologetics in our culture? One, the past. Evangelism has grown and had an impact upon culture, I would say, in almost every three-year period in history. In all different types of cultures and barriers and challenges, it still comes out on top. And so the past is very encouraging. And then second, knowing that the gospel is true. That's apologetics. Now, I don't just believe the Bible is true. I know why intellectually I believe the Bible is true. I just don't believe the resurrection happened. I know why intellectually I believe the resurrection happened. I don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God merely because I've seen it. I do it because intellectually I believe it. There's evidence For all of that. And God has given us a mind to study, to know, to learn, to evaluate, to make decisions. So evangelism and all, I think, will always be successful if the person presenting it is authentic, walking filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. One, I think you will always see results in some situations, more results than others. I have a tremendous optimism about the future. Hey, look, the best in all the world hasn't happened yet. The return of Jesus. Now, come on. You go to bed at night and try to think everything is negative. 
Just think about the return of Christ, what that's going to mean. And then when Jesus in the Bible and God talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I think this earth is kind of nice. I mean, there's a lot of ugly places, but there's a lot of beautiful places. I was in the Sahara Desert, and I was overwhelmed with its beauty, even though it was hot and it could kill you. I was very overwhelmed with its beauty. And the best thing about the world is people. And we're called to love people. Just because somebody's an ornery jerk doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means you need more unconditional love to love someone like that. But I would think some of the people I've come to admire most is people that I thought were jerks. There's a better term than jerks. Idiots. No. (laughs) But they just weren't the average person you want your kids to run around with. But some of them, after I got to know them, they came to Christ and everything, I stand back and I admire them. So I just say God didn't make any junk, just that we turned a lot of good things into junk and God wants to turn it back. And so in our witness... We need convictions. Convictions come about by knowing why do we believe the Bible is true? Why do we believe the resurrection happened? Why do we believe Christ is the Son of God? Why do we believe all the historical prophecies about Sodom, Gomorrah, everything all took place? We need convictions. And then second, you need compassion. You can have all the convictions in the world But if people don't sense passion and love and concern in your life for them, it'll all fall on deaf ears. And then you need to understand your culture. Cultures change in a big way. One of the things a number of years ago in witnessing, I've already said this, is what does that mean? How do you know that's true about doctrine? Now it's come down, well, how do you know God exists? How do you even know there's a God? And I love both those questions. But 25 to 15, 12 years ago was the first question. Now we're into the second question. I'm not sure what the third one's going to be. I'll probably go back to the scriptures because we always have to go back to the scriptures. Well, with that, as we close, I wanted to ask you just this question. That is, as soon as this comes out, this podcast, several thousand people interested in apologetics are going to download this. And I would just like to hear from you What is it that is the one thing you would like to say to people who are interested in apologetics, that are passionate about apologetics? What is the one thing you just want to say to them as they listen to this? As a new believer, very simple. I'd say one thing that has two components. I would say go out and immediately get Morna Carpenter book. Go on Amazon, Morna Carpenter. It's about a five, six, seven dollar book, according to where you buy it from. It's about 140 pages, but it will give you a reasonable understanding of Christianity and evidence documented to support it. Then, second, I would purchase also with Morna Carpenter the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And first, go through Morna Carpenter. And you might have to go through it several times. Then go to the Evidence Man's a Verdict book, and that might take you a year and a half. I would say do that one thing with those two components. Because in culture today, the truthfulness of it will be challenged, and you need to be prepared. Now, that's probably self-serving, but I would also say to someone, go get several of Lee Strobel's books. 
that guy's pathetically good. <laughs> I, I wish I could write the way he writes. I admire Lee so much. People don't buy my books for the style like they will often buy some of his books for the style. They buy my books for the content, <laughs> not the style. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. Go out and get Morna Carpenter, Evans Men's Verdict. First, read Morna Carpenter twice. Think it through it. I call it think reading. As you read, think about what it's saying, and then go to evidence that demands a verdict. Well, for me, more than a carpenter, yeah. But all the time, you're in the scriptures. Yes, yes, yes. And <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I was getting ready to say there, when I read More Than a Carpenter, this is why I don't think it's self-serving at all. When I read More Than a Carpenter, it drove me back to the Gospels. And I read all the way back in 1991. And I enjoyed that book, and it was just a very powerful book for me. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for being here. This has been great to be with you. Our listeners, go to josh.org. You know that you've reached pinnacle of coolness if you can just have your website be your first name, okay? Josh.org is Josh McDowell's website. Go get on there and take a look at all the different resources that are there. I recommend that you do that, josh.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. I believe. And I believe in the empty tomb and the stone that the angel rolled away. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. <laughs>